This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. My name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Insights at Friends of Europe and moderator of our session today. Thank you for all being with the full house. Um, the topic, as you know, is there. Um, shifting gears, achieving climate neutrality by 2050. Uh, reason for shifting gears as a title is, I hope, evident in that we have a new commission. We have a stated new ambition, um, uh, the notion of a Green Deal, which is meant to be the uh, economic, inclusive, sustainable driving force for all things Europe in the future. Uh, we're yet to see. We have the uh, muting of a brand new, um, unique climate law, which will be unveiled next month. It's just around the corner. And we have the assessment of all the different plans by member states about their ambition. Uh, which one of our panellists will be able to comment on in terms of whether actually are we on time and are they going fast enough and are they ambitious enough. Um, clearly, it's an uh, interesting um, time as ever on this agenda. We've seen um, so much hyperbole about this. Uh, we've also witnessed so much commentary, political commentary, at least by some of the male leaders of the world um, attacking Greta for actually creating an emotional uh, content to a global movement around this agenda. And we've seen how member states have vied around this and we've seen what recently happened uh, in Madrid. Um, Let's see what happens for Glasgow. Everyone's like really kind of thinking that Glasgow might be the tipping point um, that we should look forward to, but should it be, can it be, uh, given all the different drivers that are at play, not least uh, politics, but fundamentally, fundamentally, it's a question of supply and demand of the marketplace and how and how uh, the issue of carbon neutrality plays out into that. I'm not sure we've got to the place where we've um, convinced ourselves, both individually, uh, nationally and internationally, that we can actually create a new economic model, because at the heart of it's that. It's like, are we able to hatch a different economics that places sustainability and green growth as being, um, let's say, uh, a proxy for the kind of future we need to be um, looking at, which is about how much money do we really need to make? And can we make money in a sustainable way? And do we need to think about our livelihoods and how we consume? Because what we know by current trajectories is that our consumption patterns are going like this, our demographics globally are like this, and actually what we do know is our temperatures um, are rising faster than we anticipated. And, you know, I wait to see what the next IPCC report says. Uh, my sense is that people are going to say it's going to be, it's getting faster. Um, and we've seen the chaotic weather. I mean, if you're just in Brussels uh, last week, you have four seasons in a day. Um, every day for quite a, quite a few days. You think, my goodness, how can we not get real about this agenda? Anyway, enough of that. We have an interesting panel for you. Uh, we're going to start... Um, uh, with a broad canvas, we have an, uh, you know, the chief economic modeler from the International Energy uh, Agency who's going to kick off and give us an assessment of where we stand on this agenda. And then we're going to go to the private sector and an, a company that's leading the way um, um, on this agenda in a number of ways uh, and to get, hear from them what their perspective is on how they think the framework um, for what we're doing in Europe stacks up. And then we come to the European Commission itself. Um, and, you know, uh, broad shoulders, Paula, on this one. Um, are you doing enough? 
what's your sense of where we're going and how we get there? And then lastly, uh, we go to a very powerful, very effective civil society organisation, CAN, uh, Climate Action Network, to give a view on their perspective of, you know, How's it all panning out, given the international agreements, the historic international agreements that we've achieved on this agenda, which seem to have stalled in the past um, 12 to 18 months? So there we are. That's what we have on, on the menu for you. I hope that you won't be so quiet. I hope you'll be engaging. You're spending an hour of your life here, so make the most of it and engage in the conversation and discussion with us, because uh, that's, that's what this is about. Because we're Friends of Europe, we're about making sure we're able to connect the dots on policy debate the right issues and think about how we change uh, things in the in, uh, short to medium term. So, without further ado, I'm going to turn to Laura, you. Tell us, what's your assessment on where we are at the moment? Thank you very much, Dharmendra. And uh, good evening, everyone. I think that Friends of Europe next time, if uh, wants a bit more livelihood, should serve drinks. I'm looking <laughs> Yeah. So that we can all be more engaged. Uh, yeah. Maybe we can start with the... With the I guess, since that everybody <laughs> wants that. <laughs> anyway, I'm not sure how green that is, but go on, carry on. It can also be carbon negative, because you can actually put the CO2 that you store and feed the drinks. So that's a suggestion for, for, for Friends of Europe. Uh, I'll start giving you um, maybe our latest analysis and uh, want to articulate uh, uh, what we're going to say in five minutes on, on three points. First, where are we today? So starting with the data that we actually just released the uh, beginning of last week. Second, uh, the next 10 years. Are we doing enough for the next 10 years? Mm. Uh, and third, looking a bit beyond, uh, beyond Europe. So, we start with today. Energy still represents 80% of uh, CO2 emissions. And uh, uh, we have been giving uh, always bad news, always saying uh, energy-related CO2 emissions are on the rise, on the rise, on the rise, so we are not on track. And actually, surprise, we did the data for last year. And uh, to finally, we are giving a rather positive news. We find that global energy-related CO2 emissions last year despite wide, widespread expectations, were flat. This actually is the first thing that you need to do before going in a steep decline, you need to flatten out emissions. Up until last year, emissions were on a rise, rise, rise. So why did we have energy-related CO2 mm. emissions globally, globally flattening last year? Mostly this happened because emissions in the electricity sector in Europe, in the United States, in Japan, and in the, in the advanced world, Globally, they went down, and they are going down very significantly. Why is that happening? Three things. So there is not one solution there. First, for Europe, it was a combination of two things, coal to gas switching and increasing renewables. So for the first time last year in Europe, we had gas surpassing coal in terms of electricity generation, and this meant a dip in emissions. And second, renewables grew very strongly, very good news, wind, is basically becoming as large as coal in terms of generation. Huge news. Is it the same story everywhere? No. In the US, where we actually saw the largest decline in emissions, it was mostly coal to gas switch. Japan, as well, big decline in emissions. It was mostly a nuclear story. So for me, this already tells us one big news, and it's the following. Uh, when we deploy all the technologies, we can go fast. Mm -hmm. Second, is it all good news? No. Uh, advanced economies went down. Developing countries increased emissions very strongly. They still rely very much on coal. So there is something that we 
uh, if we want to really look at the very steep decline going forward, we cannot just look at Europe, we need to look beyond Europe. Staying in Europe for a second. Electricity went down very much, but there are other sectors that continue to grow. I would like to highlight one that sometimes is a bit lost. We tend to hear in the newspapers uh, that we are selling a lot of electric vehicles and we have the false sense that we have sorted out the passenger story. Passenger vehicle story is sorted because we are selling ele electric vehicles everywhere and that's a, an area where we shouldn't worry about anymore. It's not true. It's not true. If you look at the emissions in uh, the passenger segment, they are going up and the reason is one, because I don't know if how many of you bought a car recently, but most people buying a car recently, 40% of them are actually buying large cars. And a much smaller percentage is buying electric vehicles. When you buy a larger car compared to a smaller car, you are emitting more. So this segment is a net increase. Car passenger segment is not going down, is increasing. Why does this matter? Because consumers need to be at the center. We are at the stage of uh, the transition where it's not only about companies, it's about making sure that consumers buy into this transition. Otherwise, we will not make it. Now, if Europe wants to be at the lead, it means that by 2030, all the scenarios that shows if we want to meet well below 2 and 1.5, decrease in emission, our own scenario shows by 2030 has to be at least 60%. In our scenario, Europe sustainable development scenario, the IEA scenario that is compatible with Paris shows that emissions in Europe needs to go by 2030 minus 60. Minus 60. Minus 60. <coughs> so are we in track for, for, for that? Probably not. And where do we need to act the most? I would say that buildings and buildings retrofit is really key. And here, if you don't have consumer buy-in, we can forget about it. Now, let's move beyond Europe because Europe is only 9% of global emissions. And of course, we care about uh, uh, climate, but as my executive director says all the time, emissions from uh, Brussels, Beijing, Jakarta, Addis Abeba is exactly the same. So everything that Europe does, very good, it has to lead, but we need to look at what's happening elsewhere. Otherwise, it will not matter. So I will conclude with the following sentence, which is, if Europe makes it, then the world can make it. It's a hope for the world. If Europe does not make it, then the world will not make it. But Europe alone will not be enough. Lara, thank you very much. So I hope that we've taken heed, 60%, because at the moment it took the president uh, quite a hike to go to 50 and then potentially move to 55, but you're saying 60. And we haven't even seen the action plans yet, so let's wait and see. Bef before I move on to um, Erki, are there any kind of quick reactions to what you've heard? Any questions you want to ask? in terms of the assessment. Uh, Can we just, uh, there's a mic just coming your way. Just say who you are, please. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Jinks from Gas Infrastructure Europe. It's more a comment. I noted that last week Germany uh, issued the results of the carbon reductions. And apart from a trend of renewables, it was the gas replacing coal that was the biggest single step, um, which I found interesting. Thank you. And I think we have gentlemen here. Ah. <laughs> okay, be self-regulating. It's not a problem at all. <laughs> I was just being polite. Thank you, Mr. Moderator. I'm Mr. Baruti, and I'm an academic. 
involved in the shipping and maritime business. Just to complete the statement made by Madame uh, on uh, to look for beyond uh, European Europe, I have uh, article from La Libre Belgique uh, uh, last last month that the smoke uh, from the Australian forest did the tour of the world, <laughs> passing through. Uh, Latin American, Oceania, and they come back to the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Australia. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? It means that the emission uh, provided from the shelling the oil in Maghreb from Libya and Syria conflict likely they are doing also the same trajectory and mm -hmm. should uh, keep it in, into consideration because it, the wind, the wind bring everything, but we cannot control everything. Indeed, indeed, sure. That's the comment I wanted to complete. No, it's true, and it's in, thank you for making that point, because it's, I mean, it's, it's that point that on this agenda, borders don't matter. I think that one of the things, the thing about sovereignty that rears its head every now and again, actually on this agenda, it does not matter. Uh, borders are not the issue here. Um, it's a globalised, interconnected impact, as you were saying. Gentlemen, just there. Yeah. Um, Jean-Philippe Cornell is um, steering a civic forum at the University of Louvain-la-Neuve in anthropology. We are working on this topic and we work it also with Ms. Malmström about the trade agreements. And you said, of course, that Europe is only 9%, but why didn't we make better agreements in our trade agreements about what the others should do? Because we are much more than 9% in the world trade system. So this may be a good system to enforce the others. Okay, let's, let's, that's a good point, and I think uh, we'll have that debate about what we do about FTAs and making green FTAs uh, the, the future uh, approach to trade. Okay, thank you very much. I'm, I'll, I'll let you come in later, but Erki, um, leading private sector uh, agency on this agenda, you know, you're doing some incredible things across the planet in different ways. Um, what's your view in terms of what you've heard in relation to the framework that the EU is sitting in. Is it stacking up for you in terms of, does it, um, does it kind of uh, fit with the IA recommendations from your perspective, the EU's approach? Well, thank you very much. And, uh, I, to, be, to be straight to the point, I think the answer is definitely yes. I think uh, what has been said uh, by uh, Laura Cozzi uh, is that uh, Europe is, as a whole, is in a way a climate trailblazer. We are very ambitious, and that's a good thing. We are aiming at carbon neutrality, and nobody else has done that, and nobody else is even trying that. So it's a bit frightening. Uh, being a, a climate trailblazer uh, can be risky. Uh, you, can, uh, you, can, you can lose money, you can get lost. Uh, the key thing is you must have the right compass on your, on, uh, on your path. And at EDF, we tend to believe that the right compass is uh, the fight against uh, CO2 emissions. Um, and we see positive things in that respect uh, coming also from, from the Commission, but from, uh, from uh, others. There will be a, a reform of the uh, ETS and having a, a meaningful, predictable price for carbon is 
definitely key. We see also a lot of good things coming uh, from plant strategy to electrify new uses. And we know that direct electrification is the most efficient way to uh, decarbonize transportation, although there are shortcomings. Uh, I think in, in the latest, latest report, there were very interesting uh, words on how to electrify new sectors, including housings. Uh, but there are shortcomings, of course. Uh, we are not there yet. Uh, it, it's going to be a very, um, uh, very difficult uh, uh, journey. And maybe uh, to let me pick maybe one or two examples of these uh, uh, possible shortcomings we have in front of us. Uh, and viewed from the consumer perspective. If you, if you want to, to change your uh, heating system, you want to uh, buy a heat pump, for example, which is a very good, very good thing. If you care for common goods, uh, because you're a member of uh, Can Europe, or working for EDF, because we have same objectives here, uh, you can buy a heat pump. It's at, at least four times um, uh, more efficient than, than the, the latest generation of gas boiler. What is the problem? The problem is, of course, the price is high, mm. but not only that, the fuel you're using is not equally taxed in, across Europe. There is not equal opportunities for fueling here. E electricity, including CO2-free electricity, is more taxed than some fossil fuel. That's the case in my country, for example, in France. So that's <coughs> one, of, one of the examples that if we want to decarbonize um, uh, other uses like housing, uh, we need also to adapt and change the regulation. Let me pick maybe another example at a different level. If we look at, uh, at countries in Europe uh, that have uh, strong fossil fuel legacies. Uh, I was in Poland a few weeks ago. Uh, we, we know that uh, Poland relies a lot on coal for uh, producing uh, its electricity. That's it, it's a legacy, we have to cope with it. Let's be pragmatic. What are the options for Poland? They can uh, build more renewables, and hopefully they will do that. And hopefully uh, EDF will uh, win some tenders. You know, we are, uh, that's sometimes not uh, seen. We are number one in Europe in renewables, if you include hydro. <coughs> they may also choose to create jobs, uh, create a new industry, and, and go for a nuclear industry. And I think the executive director of the International Energy Agency uh, very strongly stated the fact that that can be uh, that's a, a good option to achieve carbon neutrality, and without this option, it's going to be much more difficult, even much more difficult to reach the objective. And they can also import fossil, and they will import uh, fossil fuel, gas, for example, <coughs> uh, from uh, most probably from the west and from the, the eastern part of the continent. Uh, but these are these are the options they have in their hands. The key here is to have the right compass again. The compass is the CO2 content of the technology. Do we have the same opportunities for all these three technologies, for example? I'm not that sure. Is it okay? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and, and you've said, David, uh, there are no borders. No, there are no borders for CO2 emissions. But I, I, I'm very, I was very struck by the very powerful start of Ursula von der Leyen uh, this summer. She said, I want a geopolitical commission. What does that mean for energy? It means also liberty. Nothing less than liberty. Is it, and that's my last point, and it's a question, is it the right answer to import more fossil fuel from outside world? Is, is that the choice we have to make 
I'm not that sure. You got something on my throat. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, um, <clears throat> the point about consumers. Am I on? <clears throat> Sorry. I've got something in my throat. <clears throat> and yes, can come. A bit of drama. <clears throat> my, I do apologize. I'll carry on. <clears throat> the point you make about consumers is a really important one. I'm glad you made it because we talk about cars, we talk about um, buildings. And one of the issues, and I think we'll come to you, Paula, is that one of the concerns I've always had about cons changing consumer behavior is consumers have to wire themselves around the system rather than the system wiring itself around them. And I think we need to get to a point where we have a systemic approach between the private and the public sector that looks that problem in the eye, a state by a state, area by area. And I don't think we've got that. We don't even have that in the narrative um, that I've read so far because consistently, consistently, we talk about, you know, who are the big culprits globally, but fundamentally, in terms of change in behavior, we really need a very different approach to how consumption is supported to change. And I don't see that in the narrative at all. And, as, and I think in particular, we talk about developing countries and assuming that they have to just simply go by the wayside and not have the, the joys of economic growth they have to start behaving differently. Um, yet we don't support them through free trade agreements or development aid policies to change their behavior. And poor communities in every city in Europe, you know, even in Belgium, if you go to a poor area, how on earth are they going to actually begin to think about changing their behavior, their houses, the pump, etc.? So there's a, as I said, there's a market and supply issue. You know, how do you make it more cheaper electric cars? How do you kind of create cheaper pumps? And how do you create the infrastructure for citizens to say, if I want to switch, it's as easy as going to a one-stop shop and I can find out all I need. Anyway, on that note, Paola, um, as I said, broad shoulders, you're coordinating energy policy uh, across the commission. Um, tell us from what you can share with us at this stage in this very small audience. What's your take? What's your take on this in terms of, are we gonna move fast enough? And, you know, are we gonna see something different next month, literally in two weeks away? Over to you. Thank you. And thank you for Friends of Europe to already pro always promoting this, this good, excellent debate, actually. Um, are we going to, to make it? I mean, and is it going to change? There's one thing which already changed, and, and you referred to, to the ambition of President von der Leyen. Um, she mentioned we want to become the first climate... Uh, or, or, or You're going to have to hold the mic up a little bit. Oh. Uh, <coughs> first climate-neutral continent uh, in the world. Uh, if you remember correctly, until only, I'd say, even a couple of years ago, this would be taboo. Uh, we would not even dare speaking about it. Now we are currently in the late days of uh, preparing a, a legislation, a piece of legislation, which is proposing exactly this, that by 2050, Europe becomes climate neutral. For me, working now for 10 years in, in, in the energy field, I think this is a big uh, breakthrough, daring to put this on an illegal uh, act. Now, of course, we need to make sure that we get the, 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 the way right to get there, and Laura already mentioned what are some of the, of the uh, challenges. For this, we're looking into 2030. 
And again, President von der Leyen said, what we had in place is actually not enough. We need to deliver more. In order to deliver more, we certainly need to deliver what was already in place. And there we were looking into if all uh, the many packages that we, in the, in, in the Brussels jargon, the many packages of legislation which were put into place, if those were to be implemented, uh, then we would uh, come to minus 45% of greenhouse gas emissions in 2030. Now we're saying it's not enough. Laura confirmed it's not enough. We need to go further. So we're saying 50, even 55% in a responsible way. Responsible way, why? Because it does need to be cost efficient and it does need to be uh, in a way that it is inclusive and that we're not leaving those behind who do <coughs> suffer and who will suffer the impact of the uh, consequences of this energy uh, transition. What are the tools that we have? We have clear targets for energy efficiency for renewables for 2030. We have now uh, uh, integrated plans that we're asking member states to put forward and tell us how are you going to deliver your share, your contribution uh, to this uh, European target of at least 32% and a half for renewables in the final share of at least 32% uh, uh, of energy efficiency. Last year, when we received the draft plans, it was not adding up. Uh, we still had a gap, Clearly. especially for energy efficiency, smaller for, for, for renewables. We're now looking into the final plans. We haven't received them all, it's true, but we've <laughs> received already a large uh, share. We can see that the gap seems to go uh, uh, lower. Uh, we're coming closer, but uh, it may still not be enough. So we will have to come together and put national measures combined with measures at EU level in order really to make sure that we'll be able to deliver on the current 2030 target. If we want to go further, then we'll have to do even more. On the consumer side, and I fully agree, we need to put into place the conditions which allow consumers to change behavior. It's not about changing the behavior of consumers and saying you need to, to change your behavior and you need to go from uh, a, a big car to a small car or to an electric car. It's about creating <coughs> conditions. And here again, we have put in place what it takes to uh, a, a allow consumers to actually even become producers of, of energy. Again, this it was until uh, a, a few years ago unthinkable. The fact that you can become an active producer of energy through your uh, 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 photovoltaic panels on your roof and that this is actually uh, fed into the grid is a major change. It's really about making it possible for consumers to change their behavior and to actually contribute actively to this uh, uh, energy transition. And this again was one of the core issues uh, in, in the various uh, pieces of legislation that uh, the Commission had put forward and that in the meantime have become part of our EU body of legislation. Um, thank you. In terms of where you're seeing this um, investment in enabling consumer change, whereabouts are you seeing that? Whereabouts are you doing that? How are we in, doing yeah, that? Where, where in Europe are you? I mean, how is that happening, for example? And, and, and this is, of course, when you talk to the, the, the European institutions and the Commission in particular and say, how are you, you going about this? And the question is then, how, how do you, because it's, and then we come with subsidiarity and then the change of, the, the choice of consumers, which should be left, it's about freedom, as uh, you say. Uh, um, 
So it's really about putting in place the conditions. The switching, the making it easy to switch uh, electricity suppliers is a reality today. The question then is also to inform consumers about this possibility, mm. which very often is not made use of. And depending on where you go in Europe, it's very interesting to see the, 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 culture, uh, the culture of change or the culture of I'm fine with my incumbent whom uh, I've had for 20 years and why should I, ch I change? So it's a lot uh, also about informing. And we are also reaching out to really inform about what is being done uh, what is being done about <coughs> decentralization of production of energy to really uh, make sure that uh, everybody is aware of the possibilities that exist today and didn't exist. Uh, sure. Let's just, just go back to my image of, you know, the, the poorer communities across many cities in Europe and whether they'd actually be aware of what you're saying. And I think there's a big, there's a big hill to climb, I think, in that respect, if that's really going to happen, notwithstanding questions of subsidiarity, which are, I'm sure, going to be the next battle. In terms of the fact that we have a 10 now, nine year window, because by the time the plans are assessed and things start happening, um, really, the June Council that's happening, you really need to have the act together and the politics sorted uh, so that the, the differentiation between member states can be evened out or a consensus created. Is there a kind of a risk assessment plan in place to think about actually next month we know we're going to be a bit more of a, a distance between what we need and what we must have and where people are at? What are you planning to do to make sure that by June, by the council, that we have something which is a, is a credible plan to meet the 2030 targets? I know that's a tough question, but that's what this is about. <laughs> I know that from you we can only expect that. <laughs> Um, there is clearly, uh, in the agenda for this year, the idea is to come up with this famous plan on how are we going to deliver on this 50 or even 50% of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, I'm not sure it will be in June. Uh, the idea is in the summer, which leaves us a bit... You heard that here, right? The published idea was June council meeting. Go on, carry on, sorry. Uh, but here, what, what, what leads and, and really... Uh, Given the dimension of the challenge, it's not uh, the one month or two which should make a, a difference. What is important here is that we're now looking into really the potential of all sectors, how they can contribute to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And you know, in the past five years, we went about looking at the whole energy system and see what can be the contribution in the various sectors from energy efficiency to uh, renewables, the whole decarbonization. Now we're looking at an even broader set seeing how can transport contribute to it, the decarbonization of, of, of transport, how can uh, energy intensive industries contribute to it, how can agriculture uh, contribute to it. So the scope is much larger, larger <coughs> and also the complexity of the exercise is much, is much uh, bigger because we're really trying to, to see where is their potential for the various sectors of the economy to contribute uh, to this decrease of greenhouse gas emissions. Because, and Laura said it already, uh, globally uh, energy accounts for 80%. In Europe, it's about 75%. Mm -hmm. 75, yeah. Uh, that, that, that energy is responsible in terms of uh, usage and, and production uh, of, of energy. So, of course, energy can contribute a lot, but there are also other uh, sectors which are, some of them, very difficult to, to decarbonize that we are now looking into. And uh, that's really what we will be coming up with by the summer on uh, how to go about this, uh, the potential of these various 
It seems that, you know, again, um, and I've been, I mean, I was saying this beforehand, one of the frustrations about this is this whole dialogue around what we do. It's been a question about what the target should be, um, how do we manage the politics, and delaying action. And it's the sense that actually, for goodness sake, at what point can we really get our acts together and get moving? Because that window is shortening by the month to a certain extent. And I know you can't answer that question, but one of the issues I think is going to be is how the um, Ursula's Commission will deal with politics. Uh, because to get to, let's say, the summer, you really are going to have to have some arm wrestling or some political management that gets us to where we need to be. Because it's a point you make, Lara, is that if Europe fails, others fail. And I want you to make the, you haven't touched on the point, and I know people, we have some missions here as well in the audience, um, and wh what some of you might make of a green FTA. Any comments from any of the missions here? I know we have Costa Rica here, we have Thailand. Anybody else? Any other missions? People who might, might want to comment on that? Would you want to comment on that? Can I have a mic over just here? Thank you very much. Uh, good night. Uh, I'm the ambassador of Costa Rica. Uh, Sorry to pick on you, but I think you, we need to hear from you about what do you think about a green, you know, uh, 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 you know free yes. trade agreement. Uh, Costa Rica has given a, an interesting example on, on how to deliver an uh, electricity grid that is already decarbonized. We produce 99% of our energy, of our electricity. Uh, from renewable sources, wind, water, and uh, uh, geothermal, mainly. Uh, we haven't entered yet uh, in sun power, that is uh, a big possibility, or uh, wind is still in the margin, that is also a big possibility. So, in a small country, in, in, in the middle of the Americas, there is the chance to move forward, for example, in electric transport, because uh, okay. the grid <coughs> is already decarbonized, and you can use the, the electricity and move to the to that possibility. If you include uh, some uh, these decentralized generation systems, you can increase production and also uh, put more electricity at the disposition of the people. But you'd be but up, to, but, from my, but the central point is that from your perspective, if the EU began to be much more green in its FTAs, you'd be comfortable with that? Uh, for Costa Rica, it's uh, is perfect path. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 can, we can find uh, a big partner on our, uh, on our uh, struggle dealing with this in the, in the multilateral world. Okay. The, the, the thing is. Thank you, thank you very much. Any other comment on, on that particular point? No? Any other uh, questions for, for you know, what we've heard from the Commission's point of view? Any things that occur to you, gentlemen here and the gentleman there? Say who you are again, and be brief, please. Good evening, I'm Adel Gamal from uh, European Energy Research Alliance. I have just a, a question that I want to put on the question of li liberty, of uh, customer liberty. I would, uh, <clears throat> I think liberty uh, doesn't mean anything because it always is related to something else. And I wonder to what extent, as we are almost in a war emergency, um, that we can 
really leave all liberties as we used to leave them to, to the, the consumers and to the citizens. In particular, we're mentioning about transportation. Um, I think there's a number of things which, uh, which could be done, for instance, on the use, uh, on the selection of uh, transport for, uh, for uh, air, air traffic, for instance, for short distance, should be something that should be heavily, I think, considered as a, something to remove as a possibility. So, you, and you're up for that. You, from your perspective, you think we should be more heavily instructive yes. and directive. And the liberty question doesn't appear because we are in a climate emergency. Okay, all right. Um, if, yeah, absolutely. Gentleman there at the back. Yes, thank you. Uh, Bruno Tobak, I'm a, I'm a politician from Belgium, which sounds a bit like how you started an AA meeting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you did that really well. <laughs> Sorry, God. That's not because I'm used to it. Um, <laughs> I don't, don't damage my reputation. Of course not. Of course but not. I was uh, I was kind of uh, kind of triggered by the, the remark about uh, about um, consumers and their and their part mm. and consumers becoming, for example, electricity producers. Now we have a long story about and a history, but also in Belgium about trying to incentivize consumers, private individuals, uh, families. Uh, with market incentives. You can be a producer in Belgium, you can have PV panels on your roof and whatever. Um, but we do this by market incentives and we do it in other areas too. Um, for example, low emission zones in cities which incentivizes people to buy low emission cars. The whole problem with consumers and a lot of the consumers is that it's only accessible for those who can do the capital outlay. Precisely. Uh, buying the electric car, uh, installing the PV panels requires a several thousand euro capital outlay that <coughs> quite a large group, not to, not to say at least 60 or 70% of families, individual consumers, do not possess. Uh, which means that whatever market incentive you put on it uh, becomes for many of them a harassment. Um, I know that the European Commission does not necessarily have the instruments to directly deal with that, uh, but I was hoping that in, in the whole uh, just transition story behind the Green Deal, uh, this would get some, some attention and at least trying to examine how you can deal with that. Uh, because right now that is one of the things that in transport and in housing is one of the big barriers to, to really moving forward, I think. And for, as a politician, do you actually, so obviously state aid hasn't affected you to do kind of the incentives stuff, which is good to know. But do you actually, do you believe that the EU really does not have the levers to do what you're suggesting? Because when you think about the various grants that are available to member states and the subsidies that are available, surely things can be done to be able to deal with these scenarios. Because one of the, I think one of the critical factors, people talk about just transition, they think about it in terms of national populations rather than actually there's a community in poverty, which we know, which is sizable across Europe, who do not have the financial means or actually the aspiration because their lives are busy making sense of every day rather than thinking, oh, let me go green um, because they have no sense of that because every day matters. And it's just, it, see, it does strike me and it would be interesting to know, hear from you, Lara, where, and, and from you actually as a, as a large provider, what are you doing about those who are poorest and furthest away from this agenda. So let's start with you and then we'll come to you, uh, uh, Paola. Very quickly, two, two quick points to answer your question. Uh, one, regarding consumers and poorer consumers. To come back to uh, uh, housing and heat pumps, we, we have an offer in France, uh, one euro offer for the investment in, in a heat pump and then you have a long-term contract. The key here, and it, it's the same for consumers and companies, including for EDF, if we want to invest into large 
assets. All these are capital intensive at you know, our scale. What we need here is long-term signals. And I think that's something that we expect also from new regulations, is to have more long-term signals in terms of uh, market long-term signals, like PPA or other uh, type of, <coughs> sorry, other type of uh, uh, signals from the market that will give you some predictability so that you can uh, put money in, in this. And uh, again, this offer works quite well for heat pumps for one euro uh, for the, for the, and then of course you have a contract with, uh, with EDF for, uh, for electricity. Uh, and the second thing is, I think, uh, uh, to come back to, to, to your idea about transportation, again, we have a clear compass when you, when you look at CO2 pricing. To to know, including for a company like EDF, <coughs> to know where you will put your money. Is it in a, a fuel or an asset that has a, a lot of CO2 content in it or not? If you have the right price signal, that it will not solve everything because for some sectors, the price will be too high. And that goes back to your question. And in some, some sectors, maybe regulation uh, is more uh, efficient. F CO2, uh, for example, standards for cars are pretty much are quite efficient. Uh, but again, I think we do have solutions. That's, that's the good news. Uh, but we need also to be much quicker in implementing them, especially when we look at uh, competition law for, to have these uh, long-term market signals. Sure. And th thank you for that. And I suppose the, the point um, uh, um, I'd like you to address, Paula, is that market signals are important, right? But I think we can't leave this to market signals. There's something about taking a different approach to capitalism or economics, which is a more a managed market approach. How do we get the public sector in the shape of the European Commission being able to underpin front-loading investment to a company and say, we'll give you this as long as you make it much cheaper at the end for the consumer? Those kind of things are possible, no? Uh, Sorry. Thank you for this. For, for this. I, I woke up this morning in the radio with the publicity about go for your photo uh, panels on your on your, your roof because there is support uh, and I still haven't looked for that uh, support I have to uh, fact of the matter is this is an issue this is an issue how do you nonetheless make it affordable uh, and and we're looking at it uh, now on a very specific issue which is not the the panels it's the renovation of buildings where we see that as, as, as a colleague of mine put it the other day very I thought very well Renovation of buildings, it's clear we have to really increase the rate of renovation of buildings because they're still responsible for a huge share of, of emissions and we have to make them uh, more energy efficient. Uh, so it's a, a low-hanging a low fruit but which will be extremely difficult to pick. And why is it? It's not because there's no, 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 no not available financing. It's not because you don't have the regulatory framework in place. It's really because the business case uh, is such that it, it's not yet suitable for the individual consumer to benefit from it. So what we're doing now, and this is one of the flagships under the Green Deal, is really let's try to see what went wrong and what are the ingredients to make it possible to pick this low-hanging fruit and really to bring together, be it financing uh, institutions, but also uh, associations of condominia, municipalities, um, and see how can we make sure, because the ingredients are, are there, why mm. is it that we still have not managed to get this recipe right, uh, to make sure that we can deliver. And indeed, it, we need to learn lessons um, uh, from existing uh, 
cases and really need to make it work so that at the end of the day, the individual inhabitant of a house can benefit because otherwise, obviously, if I want to renovate the house, it's not attractive. It's very expensive. Uh, it's not attractive for any investor because uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's too small and insignificant. So we have to put that business case right in order to really make it uh, possible. We're looking into that as we speak precisely because we want to, we see it's not because of lack of uh, the ingredients. Sure. It's really to make the right. Uh, okay, because one would think the emotional content is there. When you think about people's experience of storm weather, just in Europe, the, the barbaric weather conditions we've had, and how in particular cities across Europe are experiencing, because most of the buildings are not sustainable. We know insurance bills are going through the roof, and then the cost to municipalities to actually deal with you know, badly hit weather uh, 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 municipalities is huge. So the business case is absolutely there, but let's, let's come back to that, and then people might want to raise the question on that, but thank you for that. But I think that there's it seems like the, the emotional and the experience base is there um, for, for a tipping point to actually get to a different approach to renovations. But I do think that it'll lead, well, my view is a much more managed market approach rather than just leaving it to the market to come up, especially building. Builders are not going to run for this um, because of all the different issues that are aligned to it. Last but not least, I'm going to go to you, Wendell. Um, you've, um, you know, as I said, you know, uh, an agency, an organisation that has been um, serving as both a conscience and a compass on this agenda from the outside. Um, what's your take on what you've heard so far in terms of we've had historic multilateral, multinational agreements. Um, we've seen the experience just last year about how really um, none of the shock absorbers to the Paris agreements were actually built in. People just assumed, yay, no one think about, no thought that Trump would come into place or we'd have the, the kind of the meism in European culture, national states. But there we are. What's your take? On, on the agenda so far, what you've heard. And also Glasgow, what you're looking forward to. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, actually, Laura has already said quite a bit of the things that I wanted to say, but I want to kind of use the time to explain why a month actually matters. Mm. Um, going back, Paris Agreement, everybody knows about it, all the world committed to at least make an effort to limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. There's lots of reasons for that. We've witnessed all the impacts um, over the last couple of years just with one degree of warming. We know that uh, much more is going to come, and hence we need to ensure that uh, we, we fulfill on that effort. Now, at the same time, in Paris, countries brought individual commitments. Each country brought with them, this is what we can contribute to that effort to limit temperature rise to 1.5. And when all these efforts were calculated, we got with a prospect of, at best, limiting temperature rise to three degrees. So in Paris, we already knew, hence why in Paris governments agreed, okay, let's make a second effort. Let's do our homework again, and let's do that collectively by the COP in Glasgow in 2020. So we are now looking at nine more months to finalize that process and it's really the end of the process and this is the process that will actually determine whether countries will be willing to stick to the Paris Agreement. It's kind of, are we really going to implement the Paris Agreement or are we going to say, well, it's always good to make nice commitments but implementing them is not so important. So this is really the question that we're at. And there, yes, Europe needs to play an important role but it cannot play that role alone. The United Nations publishes these yearly emissions gap reports. And unfortunately, 
They will probably have to continue doing that for many years. The last one says the emissions gap that we're facing in 2030, comparing the current commitments with what is needed, is around 25 gigatons of CO2 equivalents. That's an enormous gap. The European Union, if we would end all of our emissions by 2030, that would reduce the gap to more or less 20 to 21 gigatons. So the EU alone will not be enough. We need to get other countries on board. And that's the crucial element of the process that we're in. The crucial element is we need to ensure that the European Union indeed goes for emission reductions that are in line with what he has promised. And the UN Emission Gap Report says we need around 7% emission reductions on an annual basis between 2021 and 2030. That would bring us rather to 65% than 60, but we're not going to discuss the numbers here, but that's one. But secondly, the EU, if it really wants to fulfill the leadership role that it claims to be, it needs to bring other countries on board. And we cannot do that if we adopt our target only in October. If we do that in October, the rest of the world will not suddenly in less than a month say, okay, the European Union has done it, now we're also going to do it. No, we need to do that well in time. Hence why we need the EU to take a decision, preferably already in June. That is what, that is what exactly. I say. It's not just kind of a month or not. It's about the international process. And secondly, what is important, the EU and China will have a leader summit. It's one of the first times that Xi Jinping actually will come to Europe and will meet with the 27 EU heads of state and government in September. This is the moment that we can bring the EU and China together in a positive momentum. These are the two biggest emitters that are committed to stay in the Paris Agreement. They can create a positive momentum and that September moment is really the time to do so. So if the Commission comes with its impact assessment after that EU-China summit, how are we going to create that momentum? How are we going to do that? And I think that's the crucial question. And linked to that, yes, the EU will increase its target. Whether it's 50 or 55%, I'm sure it will happen. But it might happen after Glasgow. And if it happens after Glasgow, then it will be EU only. Because for the rest of the world, the process finishes in Glasgow. They will stop their conversations. And the EU might do it alone, but it will not bring the rest of the world on board. And that's the crucial issue. That's why a month really matters. Tell me, what do you think the role of the private sector is in this, in terms of powering the elbow of member states. Are they a silent player? Are they a key player? Well, the private sector definitely is a key player. I think the private sector still gives both messages. There's part of the private sector that still wants to keep the status quo, that defends the interests of the coal industry, the oil industry, gas industry, etc., etc. So that's clear. <coughs> There's also part of the private sector that takes the other approach. And I think we're seeing a bit both of them now kind of trying the, to bring the right message. But I, I think it's important to see that really, I mean, the example of Poland was mentioned. I think it's now very, very clear that the coal industry in Poland is economically unviable. At a certain moment, governments will need to stop putting <coughs> huge amounts of financial support into the fossil fuel subsidy, just into the fossil fuel industry, just to keep it alive. I think there is quite a lot of potential in the private sector to bring the alternatives, but they will need governments to make the right decisions. And, and your view on nuclear? We know nuclear could actually accelerate things quite significantly. Um, we know that. We actually know this data to, pro, to, uh, to present it. What's your take on it? So our NGO movement is not a fan of nuclear energy. 
moreover, I think if you look at the economic story, I think building new nuclear power plants in Europe is hardly going to happen without subsidies. And even with subsidies, it's hard to see how it will happen. We have the example of the UK, where they had a subsidy of, what was it, 94 cents per kilowatt hour, which is well above the uh, market price, and still investors were not interested because they ran away. So I, I am afraid that betting on nuclear is, is going, going to be a wrong bet because economically it will not happen unless we get massive subsidies from China and Russia going into certain Eastern European countries. Can I just take a view from you, Erki, as well as you, Laura, on that? Laura could also answer to that. I know, I know. <laughs> I, but you know. I know what they've said already in their report. So, yeah, very, but, uh, very interesting things in, in uh, IEA's report. Indeed. Basically saying that without nuclear, you can't make it. So that's, that, but that's for what Laura to say. I'm not, I don't want to, 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 to take uh, your words. Uh, two quick things. Uh, one, um, England. The, the project has been sanctioned and approved and scrutinized by three different governments. These people know what they're doing. They know the value they're buying when they are building a nuclear power plant. They build jobs, they build independence, sovereignty, they build CO2-free electricity on a in a stable manner. I'm not saying it's the solution. We are saying, with others, that this is part of the solution. We know that renewables, and it's a good thing, will be the big chunk of the next generation mix. But today, excluding nuclear, not creating level playing field, equal opportunities for all CO2-free technologies is a madness. I don't understand that. Where is the CO2 compass here? That's a very Kay. direct answer to your question. A bold and passionate one. I didn't, that's good to know. Thank you very much. Laura. I think we are pretty clear in our, in yeah, our are. analysis. I mean, uh, but the thing is, in fact, I agree with both what Wenda said and what, what, what Erki is saying. Uh, How can you do that? It's incredible, but it's true. Okay. So I think, I think that uh, I'm in, listening. Europe, in Europe, <laughs> new nuclear, on a financial point of view, it's going to be very tough. However, okay. however, there is existing nuclear that is currently still the cheapest option out there. And in some cases, of course, countries decide on their own whether they decide to keep nuclear or take it out. But deciding to re retire nuclear has a CO2 cost a cost to consumers and an, and an energy security cost as well. So we are making a very important differentiation here between existing and new, and new makes sense in some parts of the world where there are certain characteristics. But I think I would like to rebound on something else which, um, which is quite important. The leadership that Europe has to take this year and the opportunity that is in this leadership. Now, I don't think that uh, uh, Glasgow is going to be super important, but I don't want to depict Glasgow as the moment of make or break of climate. Because I think that we will have a lot of deceptions if we make it the moment of the truth. Probably there will be not many countries or not many big players that will come up with uh, closing the 25 gigatons. It's going to be very, very tough. So we need to build Glasgow as another stepping stone to increase as much as possible uh, but the Europe role is unique, incredible this year. There are not many other players out there, very different from what happened <coughs> uh, in 2015 when we had the Paris Agreement. When we had the Paris Agreement, you had the two superpowers. You had the US, you had China. They were ready to take on very strong commitments. A lot of the, uh, of the success there was France diplomacy plus the US 
China, and of course Europe as well coming in. This year, if you look around, there is not so much. So it's really the moment for Europe you, to take mm. a big leadership. Now, why should Europe take this leadership? Can we just say that it's CO2 only? I don't think so. I think there is a huge industrial story that we should be telling more and more. Take the example of offshore wind. We are, Europe is the leader on offshore wind today, currently mostly a European story, but a lot of countries around the, the globe are making and becoming interested in this, uh, in this solution. We should facilitate that this happens as much as possible, the diffusion of this technology. It's not only offshore wind, uh, uh, greening gases. Yeah. We are ahead of everyone else. Hydrogen, we are ahead of everyone else. So bringing out the positive stories of European industrialization, jobs and exports, into this and bringing really a strong leadership for, for Europe going forward. So I would... Um, no, thank you for that. And, and, and thank you for explaining that, what seemed like a kind of a bit of a dichotomous answer. But you, you, you make sense of that. The fact is that Europe has this huge R&D budget and the, the biggest issue for Europe is that it can't take things to market because others, others steal those. And I suppose that's, that thing about whether the Green Deal will really be uh, something about a def different economic model, economic growth model, because actually at the heart of this is that how do you create a, a green innovation-based industrial strategy for Europe that really leapfrogs the others and that requires ambition and leadership. Before I bring you back, Erki, can I just ask you to comment on what I've just said? Can we wait for two weeks where we have the industrial <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't give us a little preview just amongst friends? Please, if you take the mic, yeah. Of the role of uh, offshore energy in, in general, uh, not just uh, wind, which uh, clearly is, so it's about really identifying what are the key areas, industrial areas, which can bring us closer into this decarbonization path, while at the same time, where we can really develop competitive uh, uh, competitive new <coughs> business. That's what we're looking into in this in industrial strategy. Again, the energy industry plays a, a, a huge role. Clean energy technologies, uh, offshore energy uh, plays a key role. And what we're also look looking into, what we will be calling again in the jargon, the smart integration of sectors. Really trying to look into how to make the integration of sectors, how to, 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 to make it most efficient uh, if you have, for instance, data centers, which are now becoming the big uh, uh, producers and, uh, and, in a way, uh, consumers of energy, can we use its uh, heat and turn it into something which can feed the, the, the uh, district uh, heating, for instance? This is what we have in mind and really in there trying to identify what are the industry sectors where we can still have uh, a, a, a competitive um, advantage <coughs> and really try to, to develop. Good to see, and we, we, you know, we won't bated breath to see what comes out in two weeks. I do hope it's horizontal. I'm going to bring you both in. But one of the things I hope that you do include is the, the jewel in the crown of Europe, which is its satellite capacity. Its satellite capacity to do stuff on climate is phenomenal and feels like untapped. I won't ask you to kind of respond to that, but I just hope that we really do think about space as a new frontier for, for, for a climate-neutral society as we move forward. Um, Erki and, and, and Wendell. So many things, but ju ju let's just speak two, two things of what has been said. Um, one on financing. Um, 
even if you don't believe in nuclear, some countries will go nuclear, and especially emerging countries. You have basically now three areas where uh, you have a nuclear industry, China, Russia, and Europe. Make your choice for jobs and for financing and for uh, the sovereignty here. Make your choice. It's up to the Europeans to decide if they want to be part of that story or not. Second, and I fully agree with you, it's not about CO2 when I'm saying you need a clear compass and a clear hierarchy. I think when you make choices, and that's maybe uh, politically not correct, but I will, I will quote a, a very basic example. Um, hydro energy is a very good energy, including for uh, uh, to um, uh, incorporate more renewables into the system. Because if you're using, for example, uh, 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 huge dams, you know, to, to you can store uh, electricity basically. Uh, you have to decide between more environmental regulation, and these are needed, no doubt, and also the idea that you need more CO2-free energy from this type of uh, sources. So having this CO2 compass helps you prioritize between you know, different constraints. You have to make choices. The urgency is about climate, so it's about CO2. And uh, uh, I fully agree, uh, offshore is a top priority uh, for Europe in terms of industrial content, but I think we can do things on solar panels, either producing uh, high-tech solar panels here or asking for job content in Europe. Thailand, I think, is asking uh, China to locate uh, uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese plants, and South Korea is doing the same. Why Europe couldn't do the same? We, it will be Europe, European money taxpayers that will pay for Chinese panels. If we have Chinese competitive panels in Europe produced with less CO2 content, I think we have a win-win situation here. More jobs, less CO2 into the atmosphere, and more solar panels and more uh, um, uh, solar, solar energy in Europe. Thank you very much. A very enlightened approach from the private sector, I have to say. I'm only joking. No, but we need more of that. We need more of that kind of, um, you know, very uh, straightforward, but uh, direct and, you know, solution-oriented approach to some of these, some of these matters. Mendel. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to come back to the comment of Laura on Glasgow being make or break. Uh, definitely Glasgow is not the end of climate action. Let's let that be very clear. But Glasgow is the end of the collective revision of the targets. And after Glasgow, that will finish. Because after Glasgow, exactly. countries will start talking about 2035. So that we need to be aware of. It is the end of a process. And so if we are unable to have at least a substantial reduction of the gap, then it's very clear that the 1.5 degree target is out of the window. And I would expect our political leaders to have the courage to say that to the public. If they don't increase the targets, then they need to say, we have given up on the 1.5 degrees, and now we will take care of two degrees, which is still better than three. I mean, in that sense, I think from our perspective, we will keep working and we will keep trying to keep temperature rise as low as possible. But let's speak the truth to the people. If we don't take action, then we don't need to make the promises that we're going to do 1.5 or even well below 2 degrees or whatever. That's why Glasgow is so important. Wendell, thank you for clarifying that point because m my view is um, that it's like the never-ending story. 
We keep on having each one, each cop, and it's another negotiation. It's like, when will this story get into action rather than constantly negotiating a target? And I suppose that's one of the things. I think there is a kind of a last chance saloon aspect to uh, Glasgow. Colleagues, I've run out of time. I just wanted to make, if there's any kind of last minute, I've, you've had one go at the, uh, one go at it. You haven't, and I'll bring you, so just as last two points, anyone? And uh, yes, of course. Of, of course, you know I always do, but I, I have. I've been saved by Anatella. So, gentlemen there first. All right. Um, I'm Say who you are. Yeah, I'm, I'm Rado Sudano from Siemens. And there is one word I haven't heard today, which is strange, digital. I know. And, right? <laughs> uh, so I want to put it on the table because uh, apparently we have here, well, I mean, it's very clear, we have a sense of urgency, right? Uh, and we have a technology or, 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 let's say, a set of tools that grows exponentially. Uh, which is artificial intelligence. Mm. You know, what's your view, and especially the commission, you know, what's your view of putting this set of tools in the service of reaching, achieving climate neutrality by 2050 instead of dealing with Facebooks, GAFAs, and other stuff? Okay, thank you very much. There should be a mic coming your way. Again, please do introduce yourself. <coughs> Antonella Battellini, RGI. Um, I don't have a question, I have a comment. And my comment is that uh, there is not only one emergency, there are multiple emergencies. And these have to be tackled all at once. So the only coin <coughs> is not carbon. There are many different coins. And if we only focus on carbon, we will fail to meet other essential things. And what's the other ones, from your perspective? Just, to, you know. Well, Ecosystem deterioration, so species, poverty, energy poverty, uh, unfairness, mm -hmm. extremism, okay. nationalistic, yeah. populism. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> okay, no, but these are. But I'm glad you mentioned because I think these are all interconnected uh, on this particular agenda because they become more heightened when you have a climate is situation in a small town. It's the poorest that suffer the most often. Definitely. Uh, <coughs> Paul Bostons, 100 terawatt hour. Um, coming back on nuclear energy, it can be a fast and effective way to decarbonize. Uh, you said uh, nobody wants to invest because it's too expensive. But my question, is it because it's too expensive or is it because there is no political will to go nuclear? We see that nuclear energy is discriminated uh, from all incentives, taxiometry, uh, the Green Deal, um, there is no standardized regulation in Europe avoiding cereal production, it's all one of a kind. So okay. what is the real reason that there is enough money and the interest rates are so low, so it's the best moment sure. to do an investment for six, 60 years, because you have to see it on 60 years, not on... But, you've, but you have seen an alliance within the EU member states from Poland, France and others who've actually said, yes, let's make you know, nuclear a part of the energy mix. So there is a political will amongst the member states, from the larger member states, to say, let's go in this direction. But thank you very much for that point. Uh, Paula, do you want to respond to the both points about digital um, and this, I mean, uh, on, the, on the nuclear side? Because, you know, we've seen what people, what's been said in some of the memoranda. Uh, but what's your view on the, the is it, are we missing the, the digital? Um, element within the 
mix. Indeed, that's the beauty of these debates. Listen, colleagues, I've run out of time. I'm so sorry. We're well over ten, you know, past the hour. Um, thank you very much for being a very engaged audience. Thank our panelists for actually providing the right stimulus for this conversation. <laughs> What we, what we do know, what we do know is, regardless of the positioning on this, it occurs to us, especially Friends of Europe, was that, you know, the Green Deal has to create the situation where you're almost in a, you know, climate neutrality war, zone, war room, where you bring all the different players and take a very systemic approach with a sense of urgency, but take that kind of, you know, war room mentality to this, and I hope that that moves forward. Colleagues, you'll be pleased to know there is wine outside. <laughs> So please do mingle and enjoy and chat. Thank you very much for being here. <laughs>